you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We begin this hour with the very latest on COVID-19. We're so pleased to welcome back to the program from UC Irvine School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine, Dr. Shruti Gohill. She's Associate Medical Director at UCI for Epidemiology and Infection Prevention. Dr. Gohill, a very good Thursday morning to you. Great to have you back with us. Hey, great, great, great to be back. And it's so nice to have what continues to be good news about the Omicron variant of COVID-19. Though, of course, there are still people who are sick and in the hospital and and sadly in ICU. Um, We still overall are seeing a decline in the number of cases and Omicron appears to be on the retreat. How uh, how uh, ready to celebrate should we be? Yeah, we, I, 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 we're so excited, first of all. Yes, of course, we are looking at the downward slope of what looked like a very fast upwards peak and then now coming down just as fast as we um, rose up. Um, so never ready to count any kind of chickens in my business, but uh, yeah, looking, looking, looking promising. Well, yes, and who's to say there won't be another variant, but it does appear, at least looking at the countries where Omicron arrived or was identified first, uh, have they continued to see now low rates of COVID once Omicron went into retreat? Yeah, great question. Yeah, it does seem that um, it, that the rates have come down nicely and stayed down in many uh, of the countries that have seen an Omicron surge. Um but still, low levels of transmission make you think as an epidemiologist, okay, well, if it's there, low levels of transmission, there's still likelihood of some variant popping up. It's just that that gets slowed down. All right. So we'll keep our, our fingers crossed that we don't see something that is is even more lethal than what we've seen to this point. Scripps uh, Health in uh, San Diego, uh, their modeling expects that COVID-19 hospitalizations should really wind down by early next month. And so just a few weeks that, that we should see significant release for, uh, relief for hospitals. That timeline seem right to you? That, that in another month we should see a just a significant uh, drop. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, when we were projecting this um, this latest surge, looking at all the data out of Europe and out of um, uh, South Africa, we had projected this was around the time that we might see some some relief. Um, and uh, yes, that modeling also seems right intuitively. Again, fingers crossed. 
Uh, you know, some people have held off on going for routine doctor care or dental appointments. Uh, I've been impressed for the appointments I've had, the lengths to which medical professionals have gone to keep their staffs and and their patients uh, safe. But um, for those who might be hesitant, do you, do you think that we're at a pretty good place for people to go get their teeth cleaned or have that physical exam that maybe they put off? Oh, absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack and say that that kind of activity should have been something that we, we feel comfortable doing as soon as we were scaled up on enough PPE and scaled up on the ability to have our screening processes in place. Um, you know, care should be uh, you know, something that you, you can prioritize in healthcare. We are equipped to do this and looking in the back, you know, it's always hard when you're really going through the surges, you don't know what's going to happen and how risky things are going to be. And there's a lot of fear and uncertainty in those moments. Looking back, you can easily at least say that once we got our sufficient supplies up and we're able to monitor and screen appropriately, that we are able to deliver care to patients um, in many of our outpatient locations and, and dentists without, without, um, without transmission uh, without high levels of transmission or outbreaks. L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, uh, when he was being criticized at Sunday's Ram game in Inglewood uh, for being maskless as he was posing for pictures, said that he was holding his breath during the brief period where he said his mask was off to take the photos. I, I have to you know, plead guilty. There have been times where, uh, just briefly, I've had to be unmasked for something. I've, I've actually tried to hold my breath as though that would maybe make a difference. Um, if if one does hold one's breath for uh, you know limited period of time, does that provide any sort of benefit when it comes to either um, you know exposing someone else or being exposed yourself? Yeah, it's so hard. You know, we're never going to get that kind of a, a randomized control trial or a study that addresses this specific <laughs> question or anything like that. So we, what are we left with in life? You know, common sense kind of interactions of the daily lived experience and the CDC definition of what do you, you know, what constitutes a true exposure? That is within six feet of somebody else who is unmasked for 15 minutes of contact. So, you know, stop, as long as you're not taking pictures for 15 minutes and, um, you know, in jet, where we see transmissions is two-way masking off for, for a prolonged period of time. Now, um, you know, if you're going to have a, a picture in close contact with somebody who's actively symptomatic or recently diagnosed with COVID and you're standing there right next to them, you know, you'd probably think twice about that, wouldn't you? Um, and then, and then does holding your breath, well, uh, you know, I guess you could infer that obviously you need the air exchange to, you know, introduce uh, virus into your into your respiratory tract. And so I guess maybe reducing the inflow and the outflow should help. Yeah, um, but I, you know, I, I say that uh, there there has to be some kind of modicum of of you know living our lives in a way that um, provides us with the best um, moments. And I think that a, a brief uh, you know, a brief um, picture. It just makes it. me laugh because <laughs> I'm thinking of when this when this happened to me the last time I accidentally stepped out of the studio without my mask. And and so I realized it a few steps into the hallway that I was out with no mask. I was like, oh, no. So I quick, you know, like hold my breath to go back into the studio to put my, my mask on uh, before I came out again. But, yeah, it's just like because we're so trained at this point. It's like, oh, I got to be careful, yeah. you know, that I don't yeah, um, uh, do something and, and that, 
you know what? I don't mean to disparage that training. I think it's just been so great. What a learning opportunity. We, we've come so far in the last two, three years. And, it's, um, and I hope some of this stays with us because there's some good stuff in it. Uh, Jenna in Alhambra emailed, my mom's having surgery next week, and she'll be in the hospital for a couple of days. I read the state policy allowing workers to work while they have positive cases of COVID ended February 1st. Have hospitals really discontinued this practice? Is that even possible with the staffing shortage? Yeah, so a couple of things to remember on that. The rules were made to deal with you know, severe staffing shortage. And so those rules are really activated when that kind of moment arrives at the hospitals. I will say for the large part, staffing has been, you know, um, difficult. Um, we have been able to, for the large part, most places have been able to garner sufficient staff so that those types of things have not been, ha- where you're actively sending in somebody who's actively you know, infectious with COVID, that's not something that's happening regularly. Now, to return a healthcare worker back, every hospital has different policies. Um, we are very, very judicious and careful about returning a healthcare worker who um, who could be potentially infectious. Uh, on the other hand, everything has to be weighed risk and benefit. So, for example, if you're talking about a, suppose, uh, neurosurgeon is the only one in your rural area, and he uh, happens to contract COVID and you've got emergency cases waiting for you and you're the only guy who can help. Are you going to clear, is, is a hospital going to clear somebody like that with their appropriate PPE to save somebody's life? Yeah, probably, you know, that decision-making has to happen. So um, that can happen. And that's what those rules are meant to do is to help um, hospital systems deal with the reality of, of what we have to do day in, day out. Tony in downtown L.A. tweets at AirTalk, I'm uh, a World Health Organization EUL vaccine receiver. Currently, per CDC guideline, Pfizer is the only choice for booster for receivers like me. With the recent FDA full approval of the Moderna vaccine, is it possible the choice will expand to include the Moderna vaccine as a booster? Uh, there is a chance that that could happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, it's all up in the air. Honestly, it, it really, ha- it's when the data comes together, when a- um, the ACIP and the FDA folks and CDC together jointly are able to vet it. That's really when we can comment. That's that's the one thing that I have learned throughout this pandemic is that the processes that are in place are really rigorous um, and, and you, you don't know what they're going to say until they actually come out. Josh in Los Feliz uh, tweets a terrific question, uh, said you mentioned the Scripps model in San Diego. I know there are a bunch of models out there. Which one has been the most accurate over the course of the pandemic? That's a great question, Josh. Ooh, yeah, that's that's a great question. It's true. The Scripps, I've I, I really liked the Scripps models. I think they have been really good. And there's been a whole bunch of other models out there um, that are semi-published or, or and not peer-reviewed. Um I, you know, I can't point to any one because the truth is that it all depends on each parameter that um, that people are using. And amongst those, I, I will I will admit that the one I look at is the Scripps one. Yep. All right. 
I mentioned, by the way, with uh, Tony in downtown L.A. that he said he was a, a, a WHO EUL vaccine receiver. Uh, I was not familiar with that term, but it's emergency use listing procedure, a risk-based procedure for assessing and listing unlicensed vaccines, therapeutics, and in vitro diagnostics in public health emergencies. Uh, Diamond in the West Hollywood Hills asks, what do we know about the subvariants of Omicron, BA2 and BA3? Do they pose a greater danger than uh, the original Omicron BA1? Yeah, you know, we were watching that. Uh, I think the earliest reports I remember, at least, were near the third week of December or so. And and since it, it's, you know, if if it if those variants were more infectious than Omicron itself, I think they would have reared their heads by now. Um, you know, it's been a bit, it's been several weeks. So my guess is that so far they haven't had the opportunity to take hold. Do you remember when South Africa first reported Omicron and how uh, infectious it was? Uh, Dr. Uh, Gohill, there was there was some skepticism like, well, you know, this could be because of the particular population or lower yeah. vaccination. And then didn't take long sure. before we saw what happened in Europe as like, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is um, clearly is. They were absolutely right. So your point about B.A. two and B.A. three. I mean, it just seems logical that if these things were even more transmissible, it'd be just taken off everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I think so far. And remember that variants, even through Alpha, Delta, and all there, there are a whole host of variants that the public never really, you know, we didn't hear about in, in great mass because they, they were there. Uh, they're mutating all the time. Remember, viruses are mutating all the time. That is what we're looking at in the back end, that when we keep saying vaccinate, vaccinate, that's, that's what we're looking at. All right. Uh, Let's talk about therapeutics to treat people with COVID because uh, we've got antiviral medications. We've got monoclonal antibody therapy and infusions available for for people. But there's a real concern about um, the supply and whether this is all going to do to well, you know, go to well, well to do city dwellers, you know, are rural people going to have access to it? Are people that are on Medicaid in California? California, lower income people going to have access. So, you know, what do you see in terms of, of, of trying to deal with the supply demand uh, problems with those therapies? Yeah, so definitely see the same trends we've seen, uh, you know, pre-COVID for all healthcare conditions, which is access, access, access matters a whole heck of a lot. And yes, um, socioeconomic status matters a lot as to whether you're going to be able to get your hands on these things. Um, whether you can raise your hand in front of a doctor to get your hands on it, and then on top of that, secure it. Um, so there, there, there's just so many structural problems that affect um, the equity of this distribution uh, that you know it's hard to say within a ca- within a nugget. But uh, yes, we are seeing problems with distribution to the to the higher risk groups um, and certainly uh, along equity lines. And I mean, is this something that? California is is to your knowledge looking to address because it would seem and this is at least a stated priority of yes. the State Department of Health is to try and assure that not just people with means end up getting things when they're available, particularly first available. But I at least haven't heard any initiatives about a broader distribution of those therapeutics. Have you? Yeah, it's true. I you know I I do think there's intention. I haven't seen 
um, directed efforts or, or policies that would immediately make that more clear. Um, it is true that, uh, you know, when when the UC, when, when the Paxlovid, for example, was coming out, we, the UC um, and all of us were very concerned that we wanted to secure enough popu- uh, you know, supply for our population that can be more high risk and, um, and make sure that we have sufficient for distribution for, um, for those who, who, who may not have means. Um, and, and, uh, and that was well received. It's just that when the supply is so constrained, it's difficult. And I do think the counties locally have been trying to do you know, their best with this, but it, it's a, it's a problem that is, um, that has so many, um, underlying, uh, sort of, um, infrastructure issues mm-hmm. that I'm not, I'm not sure that, um, well, and, uh, and with some of the, the like yeah. the infusion, I mean, there's, there's the whole infrastructure issue too, right? I mean, if you're talking about yes, people yes. living out in the middle of nowhere or something, I mean, these are not, you know, it's not necessarily just pop the tablet and, and you're getting Correct. therapy. Sharon in Santa Monica asking a question that, you know, so many people have had now that we're two years into that. Why does it seem that some people who wouldn't appear to have any sort of immune system vulnerability that they're aware of to COVID-19 have had it on multiple occasions and other people who have who've been exposed on multiple occasions, sometimes for long periods of time, have not gotten it? Dr. Gohill, what are we learning about people's susceptibility to COVID? Oh, I hope we we learn a lot more because that, this is a, a hot topic uh, pre-COVID too, of course. Um, and it's absolutely true. Think back, you know, when you have colds running through the house or influenza running through the house and then a few people just don't get it for whatever reason. Well, it's tied, there's multifactorial. We have always understood that there's a multifactorial uh, reason for that. One of them has to do with your, the, your T cells, your genetics and your, and the, and how many um, T cells you have uh, ready to fight and how well they fight when they are, they're hit with a virus. Um, some, some people just will get even less severe manifestations of the same darn virus in the same household too. And that's also tied to T cells. Your genomics, we know that our genomics do matter, not only for the T cells, but for the acquisition of the virus in your respiratory tract. Um, this is really a, a neat area of study. I hope more will emerge in the setting of COVID. Um, but we do understand that that, does, that that variety exists. I can tell you for sure we have had, um, you know, patients or healthcare workers who have had, um, you know, repeated bouts of uh, of COVID um, with a new with each new strain. Uh, that's really rare, um, but it does happen. Yeah. Um, and and then within the same household, same story. So um, the, the jury's out, but it is multifactorial. It has to do with your inherent immune system. And and they're so varied. My wife and I laugh because you know, she gets these little dainty colds that are, you know, just more nuisance. And and I I don't get very many colds. When I do, it's like my head is ready to explode. It's like this huge, yes. you know, it's like, this is the worst cold yeah. ever. And, and it's funny how, you know, I would love to have her little dainty colds, which, uh, yeah. you know, is not how I yes. do it. But, but it's funny because these are often, I'm sure, the very same viruses, but we have a, you know, totally different response. Absolutely. Uh, Let's see. We have Elizabeth in Windsor Hills who emailed, I'm a senior with comorbidities. I've already received two shots of the Pfizer vaccine. I'm ready to schedule a booster and am wondering whether or not it's advantageous to wait for the Omicron specific booster. What do you recommend? Ah, yeah. If you're immunocompromised, I'd say go ahead and take this one. We don't know when the other 
you know, Omicron specific is going to show up, get FDA cleared, et cetera. Although people are projecting that will be this summer. Um, I, I would, if, if you're immunocompromised, I, I wouldn't think twice about going ahead and getting boosted if you're in the right zone, um, you know, time zone five minutes later. All right. Uh, and uh, we also have a question uh, from Stephen LaCanata, who emailed, why has boosting stalled at 30 percent of the eligible population? Do you think it's in part because the CDC hasn't redefined full vaccination as three shots? Yeah, I th- you know, I think that that could be part of it. You know, the, um, that could be part of it. But I think also just, you know, how much we've had to really get people up to speed, even to take the, the, the initial series and all of this controversy that seems to be floating around the internet, even though data are overwhelming, um, that, that vaccination helps. Um, I think the uptake, I think this is a behavioral or a, you know, this is a question uh, um, that we have to ask ourselves. Why are we um, concerned about boosting when we have some, you know, good indication that this is going to help us? Um, so I, I'm not sure it's all about whether or not the CDC made the, the choice. I say I'm kind of baffled why someone would get two doses of an mRNA vaccine and then not get the booster. I, I'm, I'm, it would be interesting to know sort of what the rationale for that is. Right. That's very interesting. Yeah, because they, you presumably you've had the two and, and you, nothing bad happened to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, uh, I want to ask you also about um, nasal COVID-19 vaccines that are uh, under development. What could be the advantage of taking the vaccine that way versus injection? Oh my goodness, we have been waiting for a, uh, what we call IgA mucosal immunity type of vaccine, you know, again, even for the common cold and, and, and for flu, remember flu mist, um, for example, is a nasally uh, administered um, uh, vaccine. So the, the advantage would be that we have, you know, different parts of our immune system handle different parts of our vulnerabilities. Uh, we have IgG and, uh, and IgM. Those are the ones that we measure in your bloodstream. And when you get like a, a vaccine that goes into your muscle, those are the, the antibodies that we're going to be measuring, right? So IgA, this is a class of antibodies that live in your respiratory tract and are ready to fight. And um, it, they're there to protect you locally in that tissue. The problem is that sometimes when you, um, when, when you get a vaccine through the muscle um, and into your bloodstream. It'll be effective in educating your entire immune system, but it, the education of this special group, the IgA in your mucosal lining, that education is less potent. And so when you deliver a, ma- a vaccine through that respiratory tract, you're educating a whole different class of antibodies. And um, so then when you actually um, are confronted with a virus, your ability to fight it off and not even, not even get infected is is even better. Um, so we've always wanted to do that. Um, and that's why we have to ask ourselves what the goal of vaccination when we, when we say vaccine, not all vaccines are intended to, um, to only just, you know, protect you from acquiring the disease. It's a, it's, it's the severity of illness. And so that's why these huge overwhelming data that when you get the muscle based vaccine, systemic vaccine like that, we are seeing a huge drop in the hospitalizations. That's why you see that is because you're ready. It's just, you may not fight off every single encounter of COVID, but boy, 
when the COVID hits your respiratory tract, your IgG and IgM, the things that are in your bloodstream, um, have uh, you know they have to ramp up and they do ramp up and they protect you. Uh, but if you had imagine if you had the soldiers right there in the immune and the mucosal immune system to fight and educated, uh, you wouldn't even acquire it, let alone get extra sick. Wow. All right. Let's hope that comes about. Thank you, Dr. Gohill. We always appreciate your expertise and the time you so graciously and generously provide us. Thanks so much and have a great rest of the week and weekend. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com at kpcc.org or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.